1: rightfromthedeep.com. Hey guys, here's what's happening at Right From the Deep. Thanks to our patrons on Patreon. Yes. If you're wondering what that is, Patreon is a platform that enables creatives to get paid. Oh yes, we can get paid. <laughs> it takes time and money to put together these podcasts and pay for the hosting. So our patrons on Patreon truly help make this podcast possible. You can find out more information at Patreon. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash right from the deep. Yeah, And special thanks to our June sponsor of the month, KD
0: Aster. We're so Yay! happy. <laughs> thank you, KD. She is hard at work on her novel, Kingdom of Azure, and I love that title. And we're excited to see how that turns
1: out. KD Astor, thank you and keep writing. Another exciting thing is that we have a sponsorship from the Novel Marketing Podcast with host Thomas Umstead. He knows his stuff. He really does, friends, and we highly recommend his podcast. You can find it at novelmarketing.com or in your favorite podcast app. And in this sponsorship, we've been bringing you Novel Marketing's 10 Commandments of Book Marketing. Right, and this week we are talking about
0: commandment number eight, Thou shalt surround thyself with savvy authors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Thomas says, there are some things you can only learn from other authors. The savvier your friends are, the more you will learn. And I'll tell you guys something. My experience makes me totally agree with this. I have had a number of wonderful author friends throughout my career, and they have taught me plenty. And I've also been blessed to be part of a mastermind group. And I'll tell you, that's one thing
1: I wish I'd done five years, maybe 10 years, sooner in my career. So speaking of mastermind groups, if any of you out there are interested in them, Thomas Umstead, the wonderful, hosts a handful of mastermind groups. Each one is limited to 10 authors, and they meet monthly over Zoom. They also share a Slack workspace where they answer each other's questions throughout the month, cheer progress, and keep it up. If you are looking for a place to connect with savvy authors and Thomas, we'll have a link in the show notes where you can learn more about them.
0: Right. And for more book promotion and platform help, listen to Novel Marketing in your favorite podcast app or at NovelMarketing.com. And something else we've been doing, we've been sharing wonders um, with you guys. And I'll tell you, I've been doing some landscaping around my place And I'm a bit of a rule follower. Okay. So when I go to the store, I'm like, I need something that can grow in the shade or then somewhere else. I need something that can grow in the sun. And then I'll have somebody be like, well, this one can grow in sun or part shade. And I'm like, well, which one is better? (laughs) They're like, you know what? Either one will be okay. (laughs) Okay. But it makes me think about the wide variety that God created in nature, and these plants are adaptable, part sun, part shade, you know, it's okay. But that's true for us too, you guys. Writers are adaptable. I know sometimes we get overwhelmed by all these things that we have to do and learn, but you can. You can learn to do what you need to do because, like all of God's creation, you are adaptable, and
1: He will help you. And now, here's Here's the show! show! Welcome, listeners. Welcome to The Deep. We're glad you're here with us. In our last podcast, titled The Gift of Guilt, we explored what true guilt was and how God uses it in our lives. Today, we're talking about something completely different, (laughs) false guilt. The trouble is, it seems the same as true and healthy guilt, but it's not. Far from it.
0: Yeah. And surprisingly, Webster's, our favorite thing, Webster's doesn't have a definition for the term false guilt. But here's what it has to say about false. Not genuine, intentionally untrue, adjusted or made so as to deceive, intended or tending to mislead, treacherous, lacking naturalness or sincerity, based on mistaken ideas, inconsistent with the facts, and my favorite, threateningly deceptive. <laughs>
1: I'd say it's pretty clear that something false is all about misleading us, about treacherous deception, and that's exactly what false guilt is. It's a deception that leads us to create negative perspectives and feelings about ourselves. It's not just that we're at fault for something. False guilt tells us that we're bad, that there's something wrong with us, and we don't just deserve punishment. We don't deserve forgiveness or restored relationships, not with others and not With God. We all know how guilt feels, right? Because we
0: know when we've done something we shouldn't, or when we haven't done something that we should. But there's other times, you know, there's this vague sense that something is wrong. We're not sure what it is, we're not sure why, but deep inside is this certainty that whatever's wrong it's my fault. And uh, like, okay, maybe you set a daily writing goal for yourself, but you know, life, life happens. (laughs) Things happen. And it made it perfectly reasonable that you couldn't meet the goal, but you still feel guilty or even bad. Like you're letting everyone down. You're letting God down. Your mind starts down the, I'll never finish this book. I can't meet my daily goals. you know, And that leads you merrily along the path of, why on earth did I think God could use someone
1: like me? I'm useless And so it goes. Or maybe you haven't heard from a friend for a while. A friend who usually gets in touch with you on a regular basis, and then you realize, hey, I haven't heard from her for quite some time. And false guilt latches onto that and tries to slip in darned if you don't let it all of a sudden you're thinking so what did i do wrong did i make her mad did i offend her when she told me she wanted to go see a depressing movie and i said i like happy movies instead you know what if she was really my friend she would let me like the kind of movies i like <laughs> i wouldn't have to <laughs> like the movie she's like but i'm a terrible friend i should have told her okay i'll go And on it leads. You either get to the point where you come to the conclusion that you're a terrible friend and you don't deserve her or she's a terrible friend and you're done with her. Either way, the false guilt leads to destruction
0: Or maybe you put a lot of time and effort into a class on writing, and when you teach it, 99% of the students come up afterward and tell you how great it was. But then there's that one person who leaves the class without saying anything, maybe even having sort of a disgruntled look on their face or what you interpret as such. False guilt comes in and whispers, right? Did he not like the class? Did it not meet his needs? And you pick up this baton and fly with it. (laughs) Pretty soon, it's like, dang, I knew I should have taught something different. I didn't even include this, that, or the other thing. How could I forget that? I am useless.
1: Okay, yes. Some of these examples seem extreme. But are they really? The truth is, Satan is always waiting to send false guilt into your heart and spirit so it can put down roots and like some kind of evil, pernicious weed, push out your confidence in God's love and provision. You know, when you let yourself buy into false guilt, when you fall into the pit of false guilt, it becomes self-fulfilling. You believe you're bad or there's something inherently wrong with you, and you don't deserve healthy relationships with people or God, so you end up isolating yourself growing more and more antisocial and then you start wondering why nobody wants to be around you which only affirms that you're no good and no one wants to be around someone as awful as you nor would they ever want to read anything you've ever written i mean look how terrible you are how could god possibly use your writing to express his love and grace Psychologist Joaquin Selv, in his article, Why Shame and Guilt
0: Are Functional for Mental Health, points to a study done in 2016 focusing on guilt and shame. And one aspect of that study looked at the experience of both guilt and shame. Two conclusions from that study seem especially telling – the first affirms what we said in our podcast on the gift of guilt, and we'll, we'll link to it. So, Joaquin Self says, people who feel guilt are more likely to want to repair the damage they may have caused than people who felt shame. So, guilt is a true and healthy motivator, right, that God uses to draw us to repentance and restoration. So, yay for guilt, but true <laughs> guilt. Yay
1: for true guilt then there's false guilt, which almost always instills in us a sense of shame. And when it comes to shame, that same study concluded that people who feel shame are more likely to avoid eye contact than people who feel guilty. Hmm. I mean, how telling is that? Eye contact is a vital part of being in relationship with each other. It's a sign of connection, of vulnerability, of care for one another. When somebody intentionally avoids eye contact, that can be an early sign that this person is starting to isolate herself or that he doesn't feel worthy of the connection or that she is afraid if she makes eye contact you'll see right through her to the core of the terrible person she is But you guys, being
0: authentic and vulnerable are vital aspects for writing God's truths. We cannot move people's hearts or minds if we're writing from, you know, behind the curtain like the Wizard of Oz. We have to pull back the curtain of our real selves. We have to let readers see the good, the bad, and the ugly because we all have it. But if we're steeped in shame because of false guilt,
1: doing that... Doesn't just seem impossible to us. It feels dangerous. Right. Dr. Mary Lamia, in her article, Shame, a Concealed and Dangerous Emotion, had this to say about shame. As a self-conscious emotion, shame informs us of an internal state of inadequacy, unworthiness, dishonor, regret, or disconnection. Shame can lead us to feel as though our whole self is flawed, bad, or subject to exclusion. It motivates us to hide or to do something to save face. So, it's no wonder that shame avoidance can lead to withdrawal or even to addictions that attempt to mask its impact. So, should we be surprised that false guilt seems
0: to be one of Satan's favorite tools to use against believers and writers? And it's, False guilt is especially effective when used to demoralize or sideline writers like us. We're serving God or seeking to serve God in our work. We've talked before about how so many Christians who write struggle with feeling like impostors. You know, the whole, if they knew who I really was, they'd never read my books routine. Or if that that whole, someday
1: someone is going to realize I haven't a clue what I'm doing. It's all an act. I have no talent. So it only makes sense, then, that the same minds and spirits that can be detoured by imposter syndrome are also painfully susceptible to false guilt. And you know what? False guilt doesn't just focus on making us feel shame when we think or feel like we've done something wrong. It dredges up wrongs from the past to substantiate just how terrible we are. Right.
0: GotQuestions.org says this about the way Satan uses false guilt against us. He brings to mind our most horrible sins, sometimes imagined, but also those God or others have forgiven, and causes us to focus on our terrible selves rather than on God's forgiveness. You know, that kind of thing where we're saying, uh, God forgave me, of course, sure, but how could I have done that? I'm so awful. God has to forgive me because He's God, but
1: (laughs) I just can't forgive myself. And on and on those thoughts go. Now, if you've ever said or thought something like that about God forgiving you, but you can't forgive yourself, you need to stop right now and repent of that attitude because what you're doing, friends, when you let yourself think or believe that is putting yourself above God. You're saying God's forgiveness isn't sufficient, that your forgiveness is harder to come by and more important than God's. What's more, you're calling God a liar because scripture tells us in Psalms 103, 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us.
0: I love how the Barnes commentary talks about this. It says um, this, as far as the East is from the West, as far as possible, as far as we can imagine, these are the points in our understanding that are most distant from each other. We can conceive nothing beyond them. So the meaning is that we cannot imagine any way our sins could be more effectively removed than what God does in removing them. He has put our sins entirely away. They are so removed that they cannot affect us anymore. We are safe from all condemnation for our sins as if they had not been committed at all.
1: Listen, when God forgives, it's over. The sin is gone, erased, obliterated. There is no, I can't forgive myself. There is only, thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus, as Paul said in Romans 7.25. All of which brings us back to why false guilt is so insidious and dangerous. It whispers to us, Has God really forgiven you? Then why do you still feel guilty? Now remember, false guilt is about deceptions and about keeping you deep in the darkness of unnecessary feelings of guilt and about not being worth anything. Satan doesn't want you to figure out that the cause of those feelings is something he has done. He doesn't want you to actually know why you feel so full of shame because if you knew that, you could take it to God. And that's the last thing he wants because you take it to God and you're forgiven and it's gone. He does everything he can, unleashes every foul tactic to keep you from going to God and being truly forgiven. Because you know what God's forgiveness brings? Freedom. Yeah, amen. So,
0: we've established, I think, the enemy uses false guilt to convict you through untrue facts, because they're not facts, right? They're untrue, that you can't be forgiven. But he's not the only one who uses false guilt against us. Sometimes, guys, fellow believers do this, and sometimes, this might be worst of all, sometimes we use false guilt all on our own against ourselves. There was an entire... Touch Ministry's devotional titled The Burden of False Guilt. And in it, they shared several bridges or actions or attitudes or behaviors that often lead us into false guilt. And the first one was legalism. And this is what they said about legalism. Legalism focuses on man-made rules rather than on what scripture says is right or wrong. And we all know how easy it is for man's rules to become the measuring stick of faith and witness. Legalism leads to judgmentalism and pride, and to a faith based on works, none of which has power for salvation or transformation, but instead enslaves us to false guilt, because we can never, in our own power, keep the rules. Heck, we can't even know what the rules are
1: because they keep changing. Bridge number two, perfectionism. There's an old saying, the perfect is the enemy of the good. In other words, good is never good enough. In fact, nothing is ever good enough. You can't turn that manuscript in on time because you know you can do better with it. Your sales aren't what you'd hoped. So this whole writing thing was obviously a waste of time. Whatever made you think, you could do it in the first place. John Bloom, in his article, Lay Aside the Weight of Perfection, describes it this way. Perfectionism is a pride or fear-based compulsion that either fuels our obsessive fixation on doing something perfectly or paralyzes us from acting at all, both of which often result in the harmful neglect of other necessary or good things. You know, for those who take on the bondage of perfectionism, they have to perform to their own self-imposed standards, which are seldom reasonable or necessary. If they don't do that, they failed. And failure in light of perfectionism Perfectionism is the unforgivable sin. You know, perfectionism is actually something that I struggle with. My dad
0: always used to say, anything worth doing is worth doing right. But somewhere along the way, my poor little mind turned that into anything worth doing must be done perfectly. (laughs) Now, those are not the words he used. And it's certainly not what he meant. But still, there it was for me somehow. And I became overly critical of myself. I still am. Karen just slaps me on the side of the head sometimes. (laughs) And it, it doesn't help that. I'm a detail-oriented person, right? So I see lots of flaws in everything that I do, and I'll tell you, that's a recipe for a boatload of dissatisfaction. If I just keep going in that direction, I'm never going to be happy. But worse than that, it's ridiculous and it's prideful to think I can do anything perfectly because perfection is for God alone. And really, I just need to remember my place. It's not just okay, but it's human to be imperfect. So sure, I should always do my best. I should always try, but I need to define and accept that as always, always, in some way, shape, or form, in varying degrees, less than perfect
1: and in need of grace. That's who I am. And that's who we all are. So bridge number three from the In Touch devotional that leads us into false guilt is trying to please people. Now, of course, as writers, we work to make our stories pleasing to our readers, but this is something entirely different. This is when we make pleasing everyone, no matter what we have to do to accomplish it, our primary focus. And if everyone isn't happy with us, we've failed. This kind
0: of people-pleasing is not just debilitating because you really can't please all the people all the time. It's crazy-making. It's looking to other fallible, sinful humans to define you and tell you whether or not you're worthwhile or whether or not your writing is worthwhile. It's reading reviews religiously to see what people think, but you know what that does, right? You're elated with the good reviews and demolished by the bad ones. And it doesn't matter how many good ones there are. The bad ones are the ones that stick. So again, focusing on pleasing anyone but God is not just foolish. It's crazy making. Think about it. Let's say you're working a full-time job. You're taking care of your family and you're doing the task of writing that God gave you. Then you get a call from someone who wants you to come teach a workshop on writing to his writing group. And you know you can't. You know you'll have to short something else to do it. As if like, you know, he can tell you're just about to say no, he he throws this at you. You know, God has given you a gift and you need to share it.
1: Oh, yeah, he pulled the God wants you to do this card, which frankly wasn't his to pull in the first place. But now your people-pleasing side kicks in because what if he tells his group that you refuse because you think you're too big now to speak to small groups or that you don't listen to God? And boom, just like that, false guilt steps in and you're not fulfilling an already accepted responsibility to take on something else something that God never intended you to take on. Oh, guys, that's just not a good idea. And there's another powerful source of false guilt, and that's a painful or traumatic childhood. If you grow up being taught that every word, every action is unacceptable, that it's not good enough, you end up believing that. And feeling shame and false guilt becomes your constant companion in childhood and in adulthood. Your constant companions and critics. Right. But false guilt doesn't just hurt us, especially where
0: legalism is concerned. We don't just end up in bondage ourselves. But we try to put others in bondage as well. We judge their actions, their words, their faith, and so on, based on what we feel is right, regardless of what Scripture says. We hear maybe about a fellow writer that gets some kind of award or whatever, and we think about how unworthy that person is, you know, if they knew, if the people in charge knew what that writer did or said or whatever, and sometimes it's based on what we have witnessed ourselves, but more often, it can be based on just hearsay, you know, and we think, oh, yeah, there's no way they'd have given that unworthy person that award or contract or whatever. It's a vicious cycle, and Satan delights
1: when you get caught in it. So what can we do about false guilt when we realize it's rearing its oh-so-ugly head? Well, the moment, I mean the very moment, you have a sense of guilt and shame, and you don't know why, ask God to reveal to you what it's about. Pray and read scripture with the purpose of revealing the true source of your feelings. And then
0: share what you're feeling with trusted friends, with advisors. Ask them to pray with you that God will reveal the source of what you're feeling. Ask them to pray
1: specifically. And then wait. Wait on God, on His truth and revelation, and be at peace. You've done what you need to do. If it's true guilt, God will make that clear to you. He's promised that. And what's more, if it's true guilt, He will show you how to resolve it. Okay, and now what do you do if no revelation is coming forth, you
0: know, and the feelings just won't leave you alone? you know, you could be pretty sure it's false guilt that's coming into play here. And in that case, the solution is seemingly easy, but for those predisposed to buying into false guilt, let me tell you, it can be tough. So here are three steps to freedom from shame and false guilt. First,
1: accept God's forgiveness and restoration. Accept it. First John 1, 9 tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Either you believe that or you don't. And if you say you believe it, then accept it. Second, embrace with both arms the truth of Christ's atonement that it covers us completely. First Corinthians one thirty tells us, "In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us." Embrace that atonement. And third,
0: know know that in Christ you are free from any condemnation, even your own. Remember, even your own, okay? (laughs) Romans 8, 1 through 2 says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Guys, God knows our heart. His forgiveness is forever. No feeling or deception can change truth. It can't change God's truth. We can rest assured before Him, and we can agree with Jesus. This is what Jesus said, guys. In full confidence, we can agree with this, what He says in John eight thirty six. So, if the Son sets you free, you will be
1: free indeed. Amen. And I tell you right now, right in this moment, if you've taken your sense of guilt and shame to God, if you've surrendered to Him, even if you have no idea why you're feeling the way you are, and if you've asked Him for forgiveness, your sins are forgiven now and forever. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Thanks for joining us today. You can find previous episodes and more resources at writefromthedeep.com. And I bet you know someone who needs this podcast. So please share it with them. So until next time, embrace the deep. Your writing and your life will never be the same.